0: I don't want to be that guy, but it's a, we were here first. I'm not trying to say that to say that what came after it was necessarily bad, but I think it goes to show that Catholics have a unique role in securing America's future. And we can't just take that away and say like, nope, we can't do anything. We actually can do a lot.
1: Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo Slayback and Tom Sarouf. And today we're joined by our friends at the American Post-Liberal, Michael Ippolito and William Benson. And we're going to let them introduce themselves today. So, Michael, why don't you go first and William, you can follow afterwards.
0: Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Marlo, for having us on to the podcast here. My name is Michael Ippolito. I'm I'm a recent graduate of the Catholic University of America where I studied politics, history, and theology. I am the co-founder and president of the American Post-Liberal, and I am currently studying for the LSAT to hopefully go to law school. So I am excited to be here, and I'm excited for this great conversation to happen.
3: Yeah, thanks, Tom and Marlo, to both of you for having us. Uh, I'm William Benson. Uh, I'm currently an undergraduate student, a sophomore at the Catholic University of America, studying politics with a concentration in political theory, Um, Much like Michael said, I'm also the co-founder and I'm the editor-in-chief of the American Post-Liberal. And then I've also been published in a couple different outlets. I've been published in the Wall Street Journal, um, the American Spectator, the Daily Caller, amongst some others. And yeah, we're very excited to be here today.
1: Well, thank you both for chatting with us. And um, I'm really excited to, you know, as me and Tom know very well from our positions at ISI, we talk to hundreds of students every year. And so we see kind of all of the different flavors of, um, you know, these different political temperamental particularities. Um, So ISI is obviously traditionally conservative. We draw a lot of what we believe from the work of Russell Kirk. Um, And in recent years, I think we've definitely seen this... um, interest in post liberalism from our students um, whether they're at the Ivies or they're at C- schools like cua and um, but even you know schools like you know some we have state school students some state school students who and it's harder to find that state schools because they're usually involved in groups that are like um, more what would i say like they're they're tied to like a college republicans chapter or something like that so but i'm interested in hearing from you guys who you know graduate of cua current student cua what what drew you into post-liberalism enough that you started an entire publication um, that publishes uh, articles on the subject? Um, and who, who are you, like, whenever you're um, seeking, you know, writers for this paper, um, how are you, what, what's kind of been your audience so far?
3: yeah definitely one of the things we've been really pleased about is is like you say that that youth interest in this movement i think it's something very unique that you you don't even see anymore especially with most students our age most students across the country they aren't really interested in anything they aren't and if they are politically motivated they're they're liberals so being at catholic university well i guess i'll start with myself so i guess my story to post-liberalism um, probably, unfortunately, it begins on Twitter. Um, I got on Twitter <laughs> during COVID, and that's when I sort of first got introduced to figures like Dr. Chad Pecknell, Dr. Patrick Deneen. Then coming to Catholic, um, obviously, Dr. Pecknell is a professor there. Became friends with him. Um, my friendship with Michael—that's how we got kind of all. Um, linked with one another and eventually started the publication. But kind of, yes, to your point, uh, it's definitely a youth movement. I think particularly at Catholic, it's tied to, like you say, things like college Republicans. I think that's where a lot of the new right has focused its energy lately. Uh, obviously, Catholic too, being a very you know Catholic conservative school, that fuels a lot of it. But I think it's not exclusive to Catholic either. You'll see it uh, with Dr. Deneen and his students at Notre Dame. You'll see it at the state schools, like you mentioned, as well. Uh, I think of the University of Virginia, Cornell, those schools as well. So I think this is a, a very youth-driven movement in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, there's there's some, there's some dangers with that, but I think there's a lot of opportunity as well. I think it shows the passion for the movement, but I think it also shows you that there's a lot of hope in the future, particularly as the youth are attaching themselves to these ideas. And so that obviously translated into the American Post liberal with Michael and I and i 'll let Michael jump in here i don't want to talk too much, but that is very much a, a youth driven magazine as well. You know all of our contributors are under the age of of twenty two I believe something like that so it's it's a very young movement. A lot of our writers are still in college, uh, a lot of our audience is in college, and so we 've been very pleased and excited about uh, where we've started and where we 're going to take this
0: yeah, the whole point about it being a young movement it a youth driven movement it shows that a lot of the people are kind of dissatisfied about the current state of politics and about the current conversation and what's getting essentially offered by the opposition party to the chaos and uh, almost the disorder that we're seeing today that i know i personally wasn't i wasn't happy with the responses that the mainstream conservative movement or the mainstream republican party was offering and i wanted something richer and deeper And that's where I really came into post-liberalism. I I guess I was almost a post-liberal without being a post-liberal. I was very anti-liberal around my sophomore year. I kind of started to not like John Locke, and I think that's where it all begins. And then I eventually came around to being against liberalism. I think on the right, there is a natural inclination, especially on the new right, to be against liberalism you see the new right attacks against neoconservatism. I think that's a step in the right direction it shows that the conservative movement is moving away towards liberal premises. we just got to get them over the finish line. But the American post-liberal is seeking to essentially bring uh, bridge that um, gap between people who reject liberalism and post-liberals and kind of bring them together under a unifying idea And you, and basically strong solid ideas based on uh, primarily Catholicism but Christianity more broadly and also the timeless values of Western civilization that we seem to lose and William's absolutely right that it's great that it's a youth driven movement because it shows that we're not happy with the current state of things and if anyone's going to do it and if anyone's going to lead the charge and change things it's going to be us and it's been a great success so far and the publication has had numerous great essays and we have great contributors and columnists and it's it's just been an amazing success and the conversation has been shaped in a great way and we we hope to shape the conversation more and we hope to really bridge people um and introduce them to post-liberalism and also to help them if they're religious learn more about uh christianity and catholicism and have that really inform their life that's also a very important part of it is just the faith related aspect which i think distinguishes us from other publications that we're very open about our catholic faith
2: yeah and picking up on that point uh and i enjoy being a contributor as well and talking with you guys the other columnists and contributors behind the scenes um it's a, it is a great project and it's amazing to see how big it's gotten and even just what eight what eight or nine months yeah uh and we are on our sixth month
0: i think well, only yeah. six
2: yeah oh wow even better um even more winning
0: <laughs> but
2: um picking up on that thread michael about the sort of the faith aspect i should mention our you know happy feast day of our lady of guadalupe today yes yes, um, big yes. Feast today,
0: especially for america
2: absolutely which well that's that sort of brings me into my question because i know michael you started uh a thread or a series of articles i think on catholicism in america or america's relation to catholicism because i think a mm-hmm. lot of what we hear and something that we talked about um you know, when we talked on Saturday the, the, uh, with Dan McCarthy, um, we were talking about one of the challenges for post-liberalism is the fact that we're trying to uh, promote or enshrine a Catholic political realism, which I would like to hear more about that as well, um, in a country that is majority Protestant or secular, and even the Catholics who might imp- you know, impose or enshrine this vision, a lot of them aren't wouldn't even be on board with it either. So that was one of these problems that you wrote, or you have been writing these pieces um, about Catholic Catholicism in America. Uh, I think called the 1492 Project. So why don't you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, it's a bit uh, play on words here, but I guess to uh, first put in some context, like Catholic political realism and we can also add on to this is essentially our it's our governing philosophy that views politics through a catholic lens and it recognizes important features of the human person such as our fallen nature and our necessity to be connected to a higher supernatural being with the highest supernatural being uh being god himself being uh, which we access through the incarnation of christ jesus in the eucharist and that's essentially our governing philosophy But to go back to the 1492 project, so that really came out when I started looking into early American history and the early voyages of Christopher Columbus and the subsequent Spanish and French colonists um, that came after him. And much of the mainland America was first Catholic, so it wasn't just... um, you had um, it wasn't just like Latin America and the Virgin Islands. It actually were places like Florida, Virginia, the Carolinas, New Mexico, Texas, California. All these places were initially settled by um, Louisiana, were initially settled by French and Spanish colony uh, colonists first, and that's often kind of brushed away in American history when we talk about it, and usually the starting point for American histories primarily seen as Plymouth and I think it's just the the main reason why I wrote it was to show that Catholicism has been here in America it was I, I don't want to be that guy but it's a it, we were here first um and it's not that's not a I'm not trying to say that to you know have to say that what came after it after it was necessarily bad but I think it goes to show that Catholics have a unique role in securing america's future and we can't just take that away and say like nope we can't do anything we actually can do a lot and if a catholic political realism in america is going to be successful then we need to show that catholicism has been here from the start um, pope leo the XIII had this great quote in one of his papal encyclicals the longinqua and he said that Um, The names newly given to so many of your towns and rivers and and mountains and lakes teach clearly witness and clearly witness how deeply your beginnings were marked with the footprints of the Catholic Church. So Catholicism has been here uh, from the beginning, from the early days of America, and through a Catholic political realism, hopefully you can secure America's future. So that's the ultimate goal of the 1492 project.
3: Yeah, and to just jump on to that briefly, if I can, especially the the element of Catholic political realism, we've had a lot of people, obviously, when we started the magazine, we had it, we had a lot of people rightly ask, what is that? So I actually, I wrote a piece kind of tackling this question, and I think it's it's much like Michael says. I, I usually, I like the quote from Augustine, uh, and I'm sort of pra- paraphrasing here, um, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, Lord. I think that is the heart of Catholic political realism. I think it recognizes that man, is naturally inclined towards god towards religiosity it's not a question of if he's going to worship but what he's going to worship um is often said and i think that's the animating spirit of catholic political realism that we realize that man naturally inclines towards god he should naturally incline towards the church and so that's what we should be promoting uh obviously the the civil and the uh religious power those are those are distinct they're they're different things but they're not separate either and that they naturally balance off each other. And so it's about recognizing man's, you know, natural sacramental nature, and that has a proper role in building, flourishing through through the state and through the church.
1: What would you guys say is the, and I'm sure you get this question all the time, um, but another buzzword in these circles is obviously Catholic integralism. And I'm sure, like you have people approach you before and called you integralists or something like that, or, and there are distinctions, I think between integralism itself and post-liberalism. Um, maybe, you know, one could act as an umbrella category for integralism, for example, but I don't think that necessitates any sort of, I don't think one is necessarily the other. Um There are distinctions, but what would you guys say is, first of all, like how would you, Do distinguish between the two, and I also meet a ton of students, usually at Ivys, because the Ivys just tend to attract um, like students who are a bit more radical in their beliefs, Um, and they're interested. You know, obviously Catholics, they're interested in in integralism, and this is a few years. This I think cropped up maybe five years ago, something like that, and now it's in every like hit piece at you know various usually, like, libertarian publications. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's always funny to me, because I'm, like, I can probably name the number of, like, actual integralists on, like, one hand, like, ones that are, um, you know, proliferating uh, the, you know, the the thought of it and the, um, any sort of, like, scholarship on the subject. And some of them don't even live in the U.S., right? (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you distinguish between the two personally or in your paper and how would you describe it for people who are a bit more skeptical of um, integralism as like the big, you know, the boogeyman?
3: Yeah, I think they are. They are distinct concepts, particularly for us at the American Post liberal. One of the things I mentioned in that, that piece I referenced is we don't actually, I think I, I might be wrong now, we've only mentioned the word integralism once actually at the American Post Liberal I think it was it's only one,
0: yeah and it wasn't even it was just talking about a re- a book review about integralism not mm-hmm. talking about the idea really
3: yeah and I think that's where the distinction comes in for us I think ultimately I mean it's semantics I personally prefer the word Catholic political realism I think that captures more of the heart of what we're doing and so it's not that I'm necessarily against the word but I think again it's a prudential matter America is a, a great nation that has a, a vision of religious freedom. That's not something we're against. Obviously, we're not, we don't do it in the extreme libertarian vision, but obviously, in our great tradition of rights, um, in our culture of political rights, it's something we support. And so, it's not that we are afraid of the word inte- integralism or we're against it, but I think it doesn't fully capture what we're doing. I think, kind of like you say, it's just used for hit pieces, it's used to strong arm us into making us make it seem as if we believe things we don't believe. So I think the word Catholic political realism, well, it is a little bit more vague, I do acknowledge that. I think it really captures the heart of what we're doing, and I think there definitely is a difference between that and post-liberalism general versus integralism.
0: Yeah, and with Catholic political realism, specifically at our publication, the unique thing we do is that we're working within the American tradition and the American context, so we're not necessarily going to only St. Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine or these great medieval middle age thinkers. We're actually going to also American thinkers, American conservative thinkers. Russell Kirk is a big thinker that we will cite in our pieces. Edmund Burke will cite a couple of times. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, we talk about Rusty Brownson. These are all great people who influenced American politics that we're working with to bring about this... Um, New vision for America. So it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily that we're trying to do something foreign, as the integralists are often accused of. We're working within the American context, American framework, and I think that's a big distinction between the two terms, and helps us get away uh, from necessarily using the word uh, integralism. And like William said, it's it's really just a thing about semantics.
2: Picking up on that, um, one of the things that we talked about when we were interviewing Dan and chatting with him on Saturday was this sort of relationship between post-liberalism um, or Catholic political realism, as you might prefer, and uh, the rest of American conservatism. And obviously Dan is his, he's an encyclopedic mind when it comes to these sorts of things, so it was great to pick his brain. But I'd love to flip some of the questions, or flip the. I think the big question on you guys, which within the sort of American conservative ethos, um, which post-liberalism comes out of as... A bit of a reaction against part of that, in addition to um, the, maybe the, the old left and the the ravages of the new left. Um, how do you all see yourselves in relation to the rest of the American conservative movement?
3: Yeah, I think it's a it's a I think it's a very close relationship. A, a lot of people criticize the term "new right," and I, I agree it's not it's not necessarily the best term. But I do think it's very important that we recognize we are an ecumenical movement that. At this moment, you know, obviously, we couldn't just immediately uh, make the country one religion or another or something like that. We have to work together with our fellow faiths, um, our fellow Christian faiths in America, and recognize, you know, this is a religiously diverse country, and that in particular, we have a common enemy, and it's it's not each other; it's it's liberalism, it is the left, it's the regime or the deep state, and so. I don't think there should be any question um, of who we recognize as on our team, and we're we're more than willing and more than want to uh, work on the ban- work under the banner of the new right.
1: So, something interesting that I've been thinking about lately, especially um, after the um, I, I forget what the town is called, but it's in Michigan, and there were reports this was months ago when um, largely Muslim majority Muslim community was like at the school board meeting and they were like totally like chewing the school board out for like introducing a lot of this lgbtq stuff into the curriculum and it was just like amazing seeing these like progressives being put to task by the people that they ostensibly you know maybe a few years ago said that they were the the, the champions of right like they were championing the cause of of um muslim americans in america and you know I'm 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 arab american and the community i live in is We have a lot of Syrian refugees that were um, resettled here. And I was like joking with my husband the other day um, because he most of my friends growing up were um, Muslim American. And um, we lived in we live in a community where it's, you know, increasingly we have a lot of uh, Muslims in our um, in our town. And I'm like, well, you know what, if there's ever, if I'm taking my son to the public library and there's ever like drag queen story hour, I at least know that the local, you know, (laughs) the local Muslims in my community will probably be the ones who show up at like a school board meeting and tell them they cut that out. And it's kind of sad because I would hope, you know, that Christians who are also opposed to that, at least, you know, lowercase o Orthodox Christians um, and, you know, maybe Catholics at the traditional Latin mass parish I go to would show up and do the same thing. But um, at least in at least in Michigan, it was just this amazing, you know, it was like this tension between the old um, alliances that progressivism had and these shifting, you know, because of the fast speed that the DEI and, um, you know, the other the, the intersectionality stuff is going suddenly has this tension. So my question is, do you guys and maybe this is kind of limited because you do go to a Catholic university, but on the note of ecumenicalism. Um, and perhaps, like, faith outreach to, you know, Orthodox Jews, um, practicing Muslims. Do you see, like, opportunity perhaps for, like, for um, at least, speaking from experience, usually the diaspora, the children of diaspora, um, Arab Americans and Muslims don't, they're not as, you know, um, Orthodox as their parents are. But do you see opportunity for that sort of, like, you know, coalition building, you know, around post-liberalism?
0: I think, uh, I think there definitely is room for coalition building because we're united, like as William said, with a common enemy. And we recognize that what liberalism has created is a greater threat that we need to band against to really, to really move past and build something better. But I, I think there's an important point with coalitions is that – necessarily they can't always be permanent because you need to have a clear vision and we're very clear with our vision and we we will work with whoever we can and have the ecumenical movement and I think we've seen that they've we've had that before Um, we've had people from who necessarily aren't Catholic have um, written for the publication and I think that goes to show that people are willing to even if they're not Catholic that they're willing to they're willing to agree with us on fundamental premises. uh, They're able to agree with us that the state is going to promote some sort of religion. What religion is the state going to promote? That there is not this separate sphere of politics and religion, that they're united together. Ideas such as the common good, securing the American family, securing the American communities, um, pro-life policies, pro-NATO policies are all things we promote that people support us and they support these ideas so um i know personally being back in new jersey after graduation and being involved in state politics i've had the opportunity to bring ideas that are post-liberal and that are around catholic political realism i got to bring them around to people who aren't necessarily catholic and even people who are catholic and don't know these ideas i've able to spread the message and get them interested in these ideas so i think that we is it is possible and is necessary for us to build coalitions build strong coalitions but there's also a, a evangelistic aspect of it um when before christ ascends into heaven he gives us the great commission in the gospel of matthew to go out and baptize baptize the nations and that's kind of been the fundamental verse That's been carrying our publication that we're going out and we're trying to evangelize as faithful Catholics to hopefully secure America's future.
2: Something you guys probably know this if you go to the Latin mass, and I'm sure Marlo's picked up on this before, but I was there on Sunday. I typically don't go to Latin mass, but I was there and beautiful. And I'm trying to think where exactly in the mass it was, but he uses the word when he's talking about Peter building the church. He the word is ecclesia, which is a Greek word meaning like the political community. And I can't remember right now where it is in the mass, but um, it's neither here nor there because it's in there. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then when you but when you go back and look at you know, you are Peter upon this rock. I will build my church. He uses that word ecclesia, this Greek word, which stands for a political community. Um, so I think it goes back to what William you were mentioning a few questions ago about the natural harmony or ordering of um, between the church as a religious body or a spiritual uh, community of believers and then a brass tacks physical political community. Um, And within that sort of coalition, something that within the American tradition of religious freedom, uh, you have George, I mean, there are many figures who talk about religious freedom, but the one that's coming to mind right now is George Washington writing to the Jewish congregation, I think, in I don't well, I don't remember where, uh, but he where he says that in America we give bigotry no sanction. We let everyone religious uh, worship according to their own religion, so long as they um, are good citizens and uh, perform their civic duties. And I guess within the Catholic or the evangelistic aspect of the American post liberal and sort of post liberalism more generally. What do you guys think? Well, I guess what's the what's the the right line to draw for how we should see religious freedom? Because religion is the you know the highest uh, aspiration of man, um, and it's based on his the sacred right of conscience um, and the indispensable freedom. But at the same time, you have a political community. These, these things are sort of fused, and so the state is going to promote some sort of uh, religion or promote some sort of comprehensive theory of the good, Um, at least that's what I think post-liberalism understands itself to be, or understands politics to be, which is in line with the classical vision, whereas the sort of liberal order, um, I think we'd say, is like this invitation to um, an illusion about whether or not you can have uh, these sorts of things, or sort of lowering the aims of politics, um, to avoid these big questions. Yeah, I tend to share the
3: view of our founding fathers, which is obviously we're going to have this this religious freedom, but it's it's not in, unlimited. You know, you, you have no right to be a Satanist, as has been in the news and on Twitter lately. Um, so I think obviously there are limits um, to every right. Uh, like I said, you can't be a Satanist or you can't, you know, create a Satanic temple in the in the heart of the political community. Uh, but naturally and generally, yes, we have a strong tradition of religious freedom. The state promotes religion, incentivizes religion, because the state can't be neutral. And but you think of the American tradition too. Obviously, there wasn't one singular church at the federal level, but there were at the state level. The the states throughout the, the early American Republic had their own state churches. So I think that recognized that government certainly plays its own role own role. excuse me, own role in religion. It has The ability to help instrument the goals of religion and human flourishing and so like you say it is sort of finding that right line and in america that line is a great tradition of religious freedom balancing that also against the need to promote christianity and the true good ends of man
0: yeah we're not necessarily against the idea of religious freedom like william said we just recognize the limits it has and that every single belief can get tolerated we're not going to fall privy to that liberal premise but we're also going to promote our uh, vision for uh, Catholic political realism. And I think one point that's very important is that we we go about it and we do about it in the way that uh, necessarily – or that the Catholic Church promotes is that necessarily you, you first engage with these communities and you build these communities. You build friendships with people and you help bring them to these right ideas and then you help them bring – hopefully bring whatever – their hearts desire, wherever they are, to come to Catholicism and whatever, whatever sense they, that might be and help them lead them to the truth. But we also recognize about the great tradition of religious freedom that has brought a lot of great fruits in this country that we also recognize and we don't necessarily want to get rid of.
1: Yeah, I forget who, I think it maybe was an encyclical, but um, a pope i i'll have to look up which one so that we can maybe include that in the show notes maybe but it it was basically the the premise that religious freedom is actually good for catholics because it allows the faith to allows us to evangelize and it allows us to have you know the the church free of um you know sort of coercive or um violent retaliation um which you know obviously wasn't always true there were like, at one point in history, there were elements that were heavily anti-Catholic in um, the U.S., but um, maybe maybe that was the, the blessing of, you know, John F. Kennedy kind of turned things around. That's right. um, kind of a joke, but, um, but yeah, no, I think, like, whenever I'm talking to, because I have friends in the, like, I guess, Steubenville post-liberal group, which they're, I would say they're um, much more skeptical of state power, not saying that, you know, post-liberals are necessarily, like, you know, enamored with the idea of wielding state power in a very, um, like, authoritarian way, although I'm sure the uh, enemies of post-liberalism would say such. But um, it is interesting to me kind of seeing the the distinctions between, um, even in the post-liberals themselves, uh, the different approaches to how to wield state power, um, you know, and make it conducive to the common good and flourishing for all Americans. So, what would you guys say is like, I I hear talk a lot about blue laws being, you know, this kind of thing from the past that we should try and resurrect um, as a way to show deference on on Sunday and um, rather to, you know, that religious observation rather than consumerism. Um, But what would you guys say is like in the post-liberal the practicalities of what it would look like and its relation to the role of the state. Um, do you see distinctions cropping up in among post liberals themselves, or do you see like more or less kind of a united like, okay, well, we the state's always going to ex- exist. These agencies will always exist. It's just a matter of making sure that we staff them with people that are um, you know allies rather than you know these bureaucrats who are in many cases, like working out of self-interest.
3: Mm-hmm. It's, it's exactly what you said. In, in a moment, Michael can probably speak to blue laws. He actually wrote an article on that for us, for the American Post-Liberal. But to what you were saying, it's that it's exactly. There, the, it's, you know Ever since the, the birth of the other new rights, sort of at the, the latter half of the 20th century, that was very focused on small government, limited government, afraid of state power, that led us to this moment here so yes to your point there are distinctions within the post-liberal movement i think some are more prone to something like a benedict option or are more prone to not wanting to use state power but to what you're saying and at the american post liberal and i think speaking on behalf of most post liberals we are interested in using state power not in a excessive way not in an imprudent way but in a way that recognizes that the state is always going to exist and it is, a, it is a question of having the right people, the right agents, the people on our side working within the government. Because if you're afraid to use the government, if you're afraid to use the state, if you're afraid to put your people in the places where they can level power, then you're ultimately going to lose. And that's how you're going to end up where we are right now, being censored, being jailed, uh, being cast out of the public square. And so there really is no situation anymore where you can just stand back, and say, you know, hopefully things are just gonna work out or maybe just in a few more elections, it will be perfect. No, we need to work and fight as hard as we can to get our people into office. You know, it, it's an inc- sort of circling back to what we started with, it's an incredible testament that you think of people like Senator J.D. Vance who can get on stage for an ISI event and declare himself a member of the post-liberal right. And so you just see that it is essential that we get our people in and then we start actually using the mechanisms of the state to promote the common good directly.
0: Yeah, to build off the points that William just said, is this more libertarian, we're just going to go retreat off into our community and then hopefully we'll be safe there. That That's not going to work. That's been the mindset of the conservative movement for the latter half or the beginning of the 21st century. And like William said, it's been disaster. It's got us uh, to where we are now. So the post the movement recognizes that There is a such thing as political power in the state, and those things aren't bad. No one really thought that state power was a bad thing. Going back to the Middle Ages, to the medieval era, even up to the founding, they did not believe that using state power was bad. They were against using excessive state power, which every classical thinker in the western canon and every thinker in the western canon has been against excessive use of government power and that's what we we are against that too in post-liberal as in the American post-liberal we recognize that states should promote something such as the common good and they could do so such as through blue laws which I think were, I think are a great tool, well I actually think they're great I wrote about it, but I think they are a great measure to help just reclaim a sense of the human person and move away from this material culture and put our dedicated entire day towards God and towards leisure not just being slothful but true contemplative leisure that Joseph Pieper would write about but I also think policies that the state could do economic policies banning things like usury pro-natal policies pro-family policies similar to what's seeing in Hungary trying to implement that here with child tax credits um simple stuff that everyone on the conservative movement could agree upon such as border security um tariffs we support those policies that are being promoted in the new right and we recognize that we can't just let the the liberals or whoever have the control of government if they're going to be promoting things that are detrimental to the political community and if we can use government power justly then we should do so in accordance with the common good and with reason and with the moral law. We should be doing those things.
2: Well, as we bring this, start to bring it to a close, I think one more question would be apt, and it leads off of what you were just talking about, Michael, with some of, I guess, the political priorities or some of the policy, not prescriptions, because you guys aren't, we're not lobbyists um, or, uh, you know, we don't necessarily endorse policy. We don't endorse policy or candidates. But when you look at, So much of American politics, I don't know if it's always been this way, but it gets wrapped, these sorts of movements or uh, this energy gets pent up and it gets built into political coalitions. And if you're lucky, you can cause a realignment. That's what the Trump phenomenon has been. It's like you have this energy, um, like it sort of takes over from the Tea Party and builds on it. And then it's built itself into something more permanent where now you have a Trump base um, that's a major player in the Republican Party, or you have a new left base um, on the other side that thinks and really is a departure from um, like if you look at the difference between like AOC now versus what Joe Biden was 20 years ago obviously he has tacked further to the left to govern um, he's not governed like a centrist or like a middle liber- middle of the road liberal old left by any stretch of the imagination but um, for you guys what do you think post-liberalism or the American post-liberal is going to look like, especially as we move into an election year and then after 2024, what are some of the things that we could expect to be on the horizon, not only from the publication, but sort of where post-liberalism goes?
3: Yeah, definitely. So I I guess I'll start with the publication. Uh, Coming into an election year, that's a very interesting thing. Uh, Obviously, we don't endorse a candidate or anything like that, but I think there's a lot of room in post-liberalism. Specifically, you do speak about the Trump base. Um, there's at least a lot of anti-liberalism there. There's a lot of interest in substantive policy changes. So I think from the perspective of the American post-liberal, we're going to support the candidate um, that is the most interested in that. And so we plan on doing, you know, things like more policy pieces. You're going to see, obviously, things like Senator Vance has been advocating for make birth free. That's a policy we're going to continue to write about. We're going to continue to write about things like blue laws. And that there's an actual chance for realignment, you know, ever since 2016, like you mentioned, the Trump realignment happened. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there to reach a lot of these real substantive policies uh, and actually create some real substantive change, because I think so often we get kind of dragged down by the theoretical by just talking abstract that, you know, we want the common good for America. Well, what would that actually look like? You know, that's the question we seek to answer. And in particular, coming into an election year, it's not only something we can answer, but it's something we can implement. Because come January 2025, we want to be equipped with the right people and the right president to be able to implement the common good and immediately start creating these changes. So at the American Post liberal, we're going to just keep charging full steam ahead and really keep fighting for that.
0: Yeah, basically everything William said, we're going to We've already been involved in the 2024 presidential politics. We interviewed the vice presidential candidate for the American Solidarity Party Lauren an ONAC, which was a great discussion and our great, first great step in getting involved in 2024 politics. Uh, but like William said, we've already had commentary about the 2024 election, but we're just going to continue to outline what we want in essentially the next administration, what policies should be implemented. And to get the Trump base and the MAGA base excited about these ideas, right, you're going to go down and you're going to say, we want blue laws. No one's going to know what you're talking about. You need to really explain that in a coherent way, and you need to explain to the base how that fits along with the policy plans. Because there is a lot of overlap between this MAGA populist uprising and the rise of post-liberalism. There's a lot of similarities between the two. They are not mutually exclusive terms. So we need to work together and we need to see where there's overlap. And we need to essentially say, these are the policies we would want. And we need to get people excited about like what you were saying, Tom. And then we need to just go forward and we need to build something better.
3: I think in particular too, just to actually kind of tack on a few extra things would be many of the mega things and many some of the other things the other candidates are proposing proposing are are of interest, you know, banning transgenderism, particularly for children, um, things like tariffs, um, economic protectionism, reindustrialization. Those are all things the American post liberal supports. Uh, those are all things most conservatives support. So we should really focus and continue to build those policies.
1: Well, thank you guys so much for getting on this podcast with us today and telling us a little bit more about about the American Post-Liberal. And if people want to follow you guys, um, follow your publication, um, where can they find either?
3: You can find the American Post-Liberal at AmericanPostLiberal.com and at AM Post-Liberal for Twitter and Instagram. And then you can find myself at William G.
0: Benson on Twitter. And then you can find me at Mike Gibbs. And then I also want to shout out that we have a patron option for the American Post-Liberal, which you will be able to see um, on our Substack at AmericanPostLiberal.com. So if you are generous enough and you would like to help achieve our mission of Catholic political realism and of post-liberalism in America, any donation would be great to help our publication really grow. We've seen immense growth even in these six months. So any support would be greatly appreciated.
1: Great. Well, thank you both so much. And if you're a student that's listening, I just wanted to give a shout out of my own for ISI. We will be having um, our ISI Honors Conference, which is an annual conference, our premier flagship conference for students, undergraduate students to be specific. Um, And it will take place at our headquarters in Wilmington, Delaware at our newly built Uh, Linda Linda Bean Center on campus on August 4th through 10th. So if you're interested in applying, um, just go to isi.org. It'll be somewhere on on, on, um, our website. And um, you can request an application, takes two minutes, and the deadline is due um, early February. So I hope to see um, applications uh, rolling in. We've gotten a lot this year, so I'm really excited to hopefully get some CUA students as well in the mix. Um, and maybe there will be um, post liberals present. There usually is. <laughs> so, um, encouraging uh, any students who are listening to apply. And um, thank you both for, again for joining us. And thank you, listener, for listening to Conservative Conversations. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to our website, isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, which includes the intercollegiate review, select modern age articles, debates, seminars, lectures, the honors conference, as I mentioned, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we'll see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.